Happy, there we go. Happy Easter. Uh, if you've got a Bible with me this morning, turn to 1 Corinthians if you would. We're in uh, 1 Corinthians this morning. We're going to kind of pick it up in several places. Uh, one primary place in chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And uh, it's Easter Sunday, so this is kind of a, a day when we get to look at the idea of the, the center of Christianity, which is, which is Jesus on the cross and then on Easter Sunday, raising from the dead. And in fact, the fact uh, that Jesus rose from the dead um, on a Sunday is kind of why we celebrate church on Sundays. It's kind of a part of the history of the church. And so we're going to try and uh, look at those core issues this morning, kind of with a new series we're doing on the relevance of Christianity in an age of skepticism. And if you would, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, picking it up in verse 20, it says this, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. This morning what I want to do is kind of pick out two issues that I think have always existed with Christianity, two kind of inherent issues or tensions with Christianity, and Paul kind of hits at them. And then next week, we're going to try and dive into some of the contemporary issues, um, such as tolerance and, and the idea of intolerance and those kinds of things. So next week is going to be way better than this week, just so you know. Um, but this week's cool. Uh, there's good coffee out there if you want to leave. I'm just kidding. Um, the first one is this. If we put that verse back up, kind of the main verse uh, in, in verse 20, it's, uh, it's this, verse 23, sorry. We preach Christ crucified. That's Jesus Christ on a cross, which Paul says is a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. And we'll take that first one first, stumbling block to the Jews. And the way I would say it is this. Issue number one is how do you have relevance with an undesirable Savior? How do you have relevance with an undesirable Savior? Now, Paul's talking about the Jews here, and he's not doing it in a derogatory way. Uh, Paul himself was a Jew, okay? So he's talking about his ethnic group, and he's talking about things that are typical of his ethnic group. It would be like if I was talking about Dutch people not having emotions, okay? I'm Dutch. It's okay. I can, I can say that, right? Or if my friend Anne were talking about Irish people drinking a lot of whiskey, you know, she can get away with saying it. And uh, she's Irish, drinks whiskey. No, um, I don't know if she does or not. But, uh, but Paul is talking about his ethnic group, and his ethnic group has some very true generalizations about it. And he had talked about it just a minute earlier, and he says, because Jews demand signs, miraculous signs. And if you look at the tradition, they have a God who saves them. 
Their God is a savior. Their God is big. Their God is mighty to save and saves in power. So if you go all the way back, he's doing plagues against uh, the Egyptians. And he's parting the Red Sea so that his people can leave. And he's bringing down a whole city, the walls, just Jericho falling in on itself in a miraculous way. He's always doing these big, huge things to save his people. And so here you've got uh, Paul's group. You've got the ethnic Jewish people who are underneath the thumb of the Romans. And they're looking for God to save. They're praying for God to save. And they know that God hears their prayers. It might be a certain amount of time, but, but God will act and he will save. And when he saves, he does it in power. That's, that's the mindset. And so they're looking for miraculous signs. When you look at Jesus on the cross, you see the, the doubters and the skeptics saying that. If you would just come down from that cross, then, then we might begin to believe. Because you see, on that cross, you're not mighty and you're not powerful at all. You're weak. The Romans, in fact, have more power than you. And how can you be saving us from the Romans if they are exerting their power over you in such a way as to take your life. So it, it's undesirable. It's not the picture of a Savior. It's not the picture of the Messiah. It's not the picture of God moving to save his people. And so Paul says, hey, there's a chance that people miss the power going on in Christ because my, my friends and my family, they're looking for something to fit a certain category, um, and they're looking for something really big. And Paul kind of begins to pull back from that, and he says, uh, God has always shamed the strong things of this world. He's always shamed the strong and the mighty and the wise, and in doing so, he shows himself to be wise and strong and we kind of begin to peel back the layers and we look at those same stories of the Old Testament and we begin to see that there's another side to that coin. So you've got Moses as a baby put into a basket um, and even though he was pulled into the house of Pharaoh and taken in as a son and had the height of power, he was banished. And so he's now old and he's a shepherd. He's not a shepherd on lush green hills. He's like a shepherd in the desert. And he is as far from powerful, as mighty as you can get. So when God comes to him and he says, I'm going to use you to finally fulfill what you were created for to save your people, the old fire in him, uh, the fire that led him to kill someone, to murder an Egyptian, why he was banished, because he was a traitor and, and kicked out of kind of the empire that way. That old fire is gone and, and Moses is like, I'm not your guy, God. Not that guy. And God uses him anyways. And so you see this picture of God taking and not taking a guy at the height of his power and his might, but a guy in weakness. And God says, I'm going to go with you and I'm going to do this. And you see God taking a group of Israelites and having them march around a city. Around and around and around before that city falls. And God demonstrating that it's in weakness and out of, out of kind of a, a foolishness that, that he's going to move and do his mighty things. And can you imagine a group of 20-year-old dudes 
full of testosterone, full of aggression. They're, they're soldiers. Um, we, we set up yesterday, Antioch sets up every week, right? It's, uh, it's grueling. Um, so we could use a lot of people that would help set up. We do, usually do it on Sunday mornings because we are having three services. We did it last night. Uh, the janitor at Summit High was good enough to come kind of open up for us and let us do it a night ahead of time. And the janitor and I were kind of hanging out and talking, and we got to talking about high school kids because there was a whole bunch of trash just thrown somewhere by the high school kids. We just started talking about high school kids, and he was just frustrated because high school kids are unpredictable and destructive. And so I started thinking about my group of friends in high school, and they were vandals. Like I had a group of friends that vandalized everything. They, like Friday night was, was vandalism night. Saturday night was vandalize what we missed the night before, right? And then Monday night for two of them was like get bailed out of jail, not, you know. It was, but, but I, I mean, so you picture those guys, right? High school age guys with, 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 you know, armor, ready to take the land, and they're marching around with instruments and singing songs. I mean, can you picture that? It's, it's the, the, the height of, of, of craziness. Um, if you don't believe me, I, my kids have a VeggieTales movie on Jericho, and they're getting like Slurpees poured on them by the guys on the walls. And so if you want to come borrow it, you can see that this is the height of, of silliness. It's not how it happens, but that's how God makes it happen. And David, David's the king that is the archetype of the Israelite kings. This is the model so much that when it's prophesied that God will once uh, and for all send a king like David, a prophecy of, of, of kind of the Messiah, that, that it's referenced, you know, in relation to David. And we think, King David, man, he's like slaying people and he's killing giants and he's, he's like handsome and he's, he's just like this stud. And so we kind of picture that. But the truth of the story is you look at the beginning of David and the prophet comes to Jesse's home and he says, it's, God's going to appoint a new king and, and it's going to be one of your sons and line them up. And, and they get lined up and so you can kind of picture it from like tallest dude, oldest dude, you know, on down. And Jesse's got a lot of sons, right? I got four daughters. Like he had like a whole dozen sons. Crazy. Um, lines them all up. It's, no, not this one. No. No, 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 on down the line, and, and eventually it's like, hey, Jesse, man, you got any other sons? Yeah, I got another son. He's out with the sheep right now, taking care of the animals. I mean, he wasn't even in the lineup, you know? David didn't even make the lineup, okay? So he's, he's like the runt of the litter. He's, he's not filled with status. It's not the way the world works. It's not how um, we would choose the next ruler, you know, a guy, we would want to see something that he's already manly, that he's already ready to go, like, you know, fight these battles, that people already look up to him. And, and God's taking this guy that doesn't even make the lineup, and he's saying, yeah, that's who it's going to be. And so Paul is saying, look, it's, let's not get caught with the power of God, because the power of God's always there, but the power of God works through these weak things of the world. And in, in, in doing so, it shows the power of God, not the power of man. And so Paul kind of pulls back from this and begins to want to help people see what's going on. But this first, this first critique really has to do with this idea of an undesirable Savior. 
Um, it's not the Savior we want. It's not the guy we're looking for. Uh, we want Brad Pitt in The Legends of the Fall. You know what I mean? Like, if I'm creating my, my, my religion, I realized during the first service that, because I was like, you know, Brad Pitt had hair to hear, and then I realized Jesus had hair to hear, and so then I realized, like, Jesus might have looked like Brad Pitt. So maybe Jesus was like Brad you know, I don't know. But, but, like, if we're creating our own religion, we, we like worshiping our heroes. And because we like worshiping our heroes, man, we want them to be this magnificent, great thing. We begin to pick it that way. And we don't like awkward edges. We don't like undesirable traits. We don't like our hero dying on a cross. We don't like um, weakness. We don't like looking like failure when we're asking for success. It's, it's like God's program and his kingdom comes to an end when Jesus dies, when, when what we're looking for is him to actually initiate and, and bring it in with power. And so there's this, this idea of an undesirable Savior. Now that is still going on today of trying to wrestle with, man, this is, I just don't like the shape of Christianity. It's got these rough edges. I don't like it. I want it to change a little bit. And um, I think we do that inside the church. We do that not from afar. We do that close. I mean, Paul's a, a Jew here, and he's talking about his friends and, he's, and his family. And he's like, man, we, we tend to not like the rough edges of this Christian thing. Like, I didn't always plan to be a, a pastor. Uh, I was age 23-ish when I um, kind of picked that direction. I was like, all right, God, where do you want me to go, and how do you want me to do this thing? But I didn't grow up wanting to be a pastor. It's not a cool thing. Like, dads and pastors, you know, name one movie where they look good. Right? It's not, there's nothing. And I'm both. I'm, I'm really conflicted. That's why I go to therapy. Um, but it's, uh, you know, I, I didn't go to college for this. I actually was an engineering student at Clemson, and, and that's an interesting story because I always thought I would just grow up to ski all the time. And so um, how I got into engineering is a, a kind of an interesting story. I don't know if you guys know it. I might have shared it before. Um, it's, it's real simple. I was skiing one weekend while my dad filled out the Clemson application for me, and my dad checked engineering. That's how I got into engineering. And then I was kept there, really, by a manipulative scheme of my dad's. Um, he blackmailed me. He said, if you, if you transfer out of engineering, then I stop paying for college. So while all my friends were dropping out of engineering, I, I, did, I didn't even think about engineering. I was like, oh, I just got to stay in it, you know. So that's how I did engineering. Anyways, um, I'm a pastor now. A lot less cool. And one of the things I've realized the last number of years, especially it's picking up speed like crazy, is even in, within the church and with pastors even, we come to Christianity and we just go, man, there's just some rough edges here that, that we don't like. It's not tasteful to us. Maybe we can just play with the edges and make it a lot more palpable. Um, so this thing that was going on, Paul saying, look, you're going to miss it. If you're looking for it to be all grand, um, it's actually kind of crazy. We, we fight that today. We want to pretty it up and package it up and, and make it not look so messy. And um, this has been going on for, for quite a while, especially in American. Um, Richard Niebuhr, it's a quote I love. He said this back in his day. He said this, Too often we want a God without wrath who brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ 
without a cross. Too often we want a God without wrath who brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. The cross and what it represents is a stumbling block. It trips us up. It's something in our path when we're walking along the the road and and we're walking, we're happy, life's going good, and we know where we want to go. All of a sudden it trips us. And tripping is an interesting thing because you always get caught off guard. Nobody plans to trip. Right? And that's why when you, when you trip, your first reaction is like a nervous laugh. Because <laughs> you look around at the people that saw you trip, and you kind of try to play it off, but there's no playing it off. Because you didn't mean to do it. Right? And no matter how much you laugh, everyone knows that you got caught off guard. It's a stumbling block that trips us up. It's not what we expect. It's not what we want. We don't want what the cross represents. It's a stumbling block. Peter um, picks up on the same theme if you want to turn to First Peter. And Peter says it this way. In chapter 2 of First uh, Peter. I'll just read the whole thing. Verse 4, chapter 2, verse 4 says, As you come to him, as you come to Christ, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, and and he quotes Scripture here, and he says, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. This is not going to be something that trips you up and ultimately leads to your shame. I'm putting something here that's going to be built up into something uh, wonderful. But, so the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, and then he quotes scripture again, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And, and Peter is quoting scripture and saying, look, Christ is going to divide people. He's going to divide people, and on one side, it's the building block of what what God's doing. His power, his might is going to be shown through this. His saving arm is going to come through this. However, those who don't go down this path, the stone that God is uh, choosing here, that he's building with, that stone ends up being the very thing that causes you to lose your faith or to, to, to reject Christianity. It's going to cause you to stumble. It'll trip you up. Nobody's going to go, if I'm creating my own religion... I want blood, and I want a cross, and I want the hero to die. No one's going to pick that, and it trips us up. So the first issue here with this relevance, and it's been a part of it for 2,000 years, it's always something that trips us up is this idea of an undesirable Savior. The second one is this. Uh, The second issue, issue number two with relevance, is that of an inglorious cross. That of an inglorious cross. If we put um, 1 Corinthians 2.23 back up here, or 1.23, we preach Christ crucified. So Jesus, on this cross, is a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. And what 
Paul means by Gentiles is, just a minute ago, he referenced Greeks, and he's using that synonymously, and he's saying the Greeks and Gentiles. But it's the opposite extreme. You've got two ethnic groups. You've got the Jews on one hand, and you've got the Greeks on the other, the Gentiles. Now, the Jews are looking for something mighty, and the Greeks are looking for something different. They're looking for wisdom and learning. And this is folly. It's foolishness to the Greeks. So there's two aspects to this. I want to take the first one first. The Greek culture. Now, why is Paul taking both of these um, and juxtaposing them? It's because they were, they were, one was pervasive within the religion of Paul um, and his homeland. The other one was pervasive all throughout the Roman Empire, and that's uh, the Greek culture. Because before the Romans had come through, Alexander the Great uh, had Hellenized, which means taken um, the Hellenistic culture and, and brought it all throughout the, the known world at that point. So all of Alexander the Great's conquests, he put uh, the gymnasiums and the schools and the, the language and everything else in there. And so you've, you've got Greek culture and learning everywhere you go within that Roman Empire. And so, you know, that's why Paul uses it to juxtapose. But now within the Greek culture, there's something really interesting about how they see glory. You see, for the Greeks, glory was a huge thing huge thing. It's actually tied uh, in most places to how they viewed eternal life. Eternal life for Greeks was really like your mortal life living on through the name you create for yourself, the glory you get. It's about um, attaining a level of glory and becoming the hero and uh, winning the games, if you will, the Olympic games and all these things. But it's about this kind of competition and overcoming each other or overcoming different things and and attaining this position of glory that secures your place kind of in the annals. Glory is a huge thing in the Greek culture. So when the Greek culture comes to the hero, supposed hero, dying on a cross, failing, being beaten, being... uh, being killed, it, it's, it's not, it doesn't fit. It doesn't fit the story. It doesn't fit the model. It doesn't fit what's going on. It's, it's paradoxical. It's like, no, that's not what a hero looks like. That's not the kind of glory that the hero attains. That's not how you become somebody unique and special that lives on through, through time within our, our culture and in our stories. That's just not how it goes. Um, And not only is Jesus dying this way, but you see, he's calling his followers to a certain life. He's saying, I'm suffering this way, and you're going to suffer this way too. I'm literally dying on a cross. You're going to take your your crosses and and follow me. You're going to literally choose to die that you might live. You're going to lose your life so that you can gain it. You're going to serve others so that you might be fulfilled. Jesus isn't just dying and and it's upside down. He's inviting all of us into a kingdom, his kingdom, where the whole thing is upside down. And glory is no longer ours. It's something that we, we ascribe to God and we're like, it's to your glory alone. And therefore, because I want your glory, I'm in your system Uh, obeying your commands, and that's where my source of joy comes from, my satisfaction, but it's completely paradoxical. So it's not just that Jesus is dying, it's the program that that initiates. 
um, and it's foolishness to the Greeks. If you, if you read philosophy, um, the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche in the 1800s, um, this was his big frustration with Christianity. See, Nietzsche wasn't a true, uh, a true philosopher. He was actually trained as a philologist, which means uh, you study ancient languages, and he studied classical Greek. He was an expert in classical Greek language and culture, and he revered the Greeks. And so his kind of whole thought and thought process and ideas are shaped by this. And so he loved what was uh, the Greek god Dionysius, and he called it the Dionysian uh, frenzy. Dionysius is the, the Greek god of wine, and so what we would call a rave. Um, the Dionysian frenzy was these festivals that they would have where you kind of just go crazy, and you lose your individuality in, in, in the mob kind of thing. And Nietzsche said, you know, that's the height of like really experiencing oneness. So his unity was tied there. And then his idea of glory, which he developed into his philosophy of the, the overman, the ubermensch, uh, the superman, was evolving beyond other people, making of yourself something great. Writing your own tablet of virtues, and he used the word tablet on purpose because he was saying this moral code of Christianity has to be gotten rid of and you've got to create your own tablet of, of virtues that you're going to use to develop yourself into something glorious. So his whole kind of philosophy um, and existentialism kind of takes a lot of the themes from this was, was to become something great, Okay. And so for Nietzsche, when he comes to Christianity, Nietzsche looks at it and he says, my whole philosophy is about life affirming and growing into something grand. Christianity, is a, in his mind, is life negating and about becoming nothing. Do you see the tension? He looked at Jesus dying and, and the call to follow him or the call to give your life away or to serve or to sacrifice as weak things, what he called herding instincts. Um, it's not how you grow strong. It's not how you become great. And he saw it as life negating that if we take that program and follow it, uh, we're never going to arrive where we're supposed to go. It's foolishness. Now, the funny thing is, is um, that's, the, that's one half of the coin in Christianity. It's one half of the paradox. And if we look at a lot of Christians, you might have a relative from growing up or someone you know. There are a lot of Christians out there that only take the dying to self part, and that's the sum total for them, and they haven't smiled in like 20, 30, 40 years. You know what I'm talking about? Like just the sour Christians that don't know how to smile. And that's, that's a part of Christianity, people that, that don't take the whole context. They just take this, this little part of it, and, and it's life-negating. But when you take the sum total of it, you take Paul's words and Jesus' words. Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have it to the full. He said, lose your life. Why? So that you can find it again. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice always. And, and joy was always a part of it. This, this fullness of life, this state of being, this, this happiness. C.S. Lewis writes, um, you know, it's a, a duty for every Christian to be as happy as they can be. Not happier than you can be, but if you can be this happy and you're like going around with a frowny face, you know what I'm saying? Like, what's going on there? You know? Um, so go up to Christians with like frowny faces and just be like, what's going on with that? You know? 
But if you can be this happy, you've got a relationship with God, you've been forgiven, there's good news out there. There's this fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, all these things, goodness, mercy, self-control. Like, there's this, this other side to the paradox that's so life-affirming. But Nietzsche looks at it and says it's life-negating and he rejects it as folly. Um, it's not the way it's supposed to be, but you can see the paradox at work. There's a second part to the, the Greeks. The, the Greek notion of glory makes Christ on the cross and the program he's bringing about look foolish and inglorious. The second part is the nature of the Greek gods. The Greek gods, there's many of them, uh, the Pantheon, Mount Olympus. You have these gods that are very human-like and, and not very virtuous. They're, they're a lot like people, humans, who are given too much power. If you look at a dictator somewhere in the world now, or, or you go back in history and look at a dictator, what men tend to do when they have ultimate power is not become more virtuous. They tend to use the people underneath them and abuse the people underneath them, and they tend to gratify their pleasures more and more. Does that make sense? And so the Greek gods are really, in some sense, a mirror of what humans look like when they have too much power. And no, no Greek is sitting around going, I'm dying for a relationship with one of those gods. A lot like a dictator, uh, you're dying to stay out of their way. Like Machiavelli, you might fear them, but you don't love them. They're a ruler that you're not looking at in terms of relational fulfillment, connection, or unity. And so the Greek idea of the gods can't understand what is happening on the cross. Because Jesus goes to the cross because he says, look, I'm going to work in power. I'm going I'm to come and I'm going to save in a mighty way. But it's not saving you from the Romans because that's, that's just governmental. What I actually want to save you from is the separation that you have from God, which is complete has everything to do with the core of who you are, has to do with your future, it has to do with everything. And because I love you, what I want to do is fix that. I want to restore that relationship that you have with God. I want to reconcile you to him. I want to redeem you from where you're at to where you're supposed to be, where you were created to be. But what I'm doing is I'm bridging this gap and I'm bringing unity between you and God. Now, to the Greeks, that's folly. What, what gives with that? No, that's not the question I'm asking. I'm not dying to have a relationship with one of the gods. Like, it's, it's not the program. For Christ it is. He's saying, look, God is your heavenly Father. God is love. He's not the, the, just a, a parlayed-up example of a human dictator that doesn't know how to use power. He's the best example of virtue, the best example of character and love that there is. And that God who created you, who made you, desires that relationship with you. It's a lot like family. It's a lot like father. And Jesus is saying, man, this is where I'm going. This is the good news. Is it at the core, at the center, not on the externals, but on the internals, I'm saving you. And so to the, the Greeks, it's folly. But Paul is saying, look, God is shaming the wise things of the world because what he's doing um, is grand beyond description. And it's wise in a way that supersedes our wisdom. We might 
want to shade it out this way, but God's plan shades it out so much better. And that's what Paul's trying to say. And so there's two things. There's the, the glory and then the nature of the God's in this idea of the inglorious cross and the issue with our relevance. The, um, this issue, I think, is still a part of us today. We, we treat Christianity often as a self-help mechanism. We're, life is difficult. Um, life is messy. God is mysterious. I say, I say it a lot. Life is messy. Uh, it's always going to be a little bit messier than what we think it should be. So there's this inherent tension of feeling like it should be cleaner than it's ever going to be. And God is more mysterious than we think he should be. And we're always wanting to kind of solve the riddles and remove the mystery or, or, or whatnot a little bit more than what we can. And so we're always trying to fix these tensions instead of living with them. But life is messy. God is mysterious. But the, the temptation in America is to reduce Christianity or the religion of Christianity down to pragmatic truth to make it work for us, to make it a self-help mechanism. So that if we take this and plug it into our life, you know, give it a month or two, my marriage is going to be better. And I, you know what? Your marriage might get better, but that's not what Christianity exists for. See what I'm saying? The end isn't your marriage, and Christianity is a means to the end. Okay? Christianity is the end, and a better marriage is a byproduct. Okay? Uh, the end goal isn't happiness per se. The end is a relationship with God, and happiness is a byproduct of that. Does that make sense? And so within this idea of reducing Christianity down to this self-help thing, when you immediately start talking about give your life away or um, forget trying to become better or establish your career or climb the ladder or make something of yourself, actually sell everything you have and go serve the poor or begin thinking more about mission or ministry or instead of going to church less because we all know church isn't cool, actually get in there and do set up or work with the kids. You know what I'm saying? It doesn't really fit the self-help model because I'm, I'm trying to help myself and I keep running into these things that talk about forget yourself. Take self out of the picture. Consider other people better than yourself. Look to their interests, not just to the interest of yourself. So we kind of want to reduce it down to the self-help thing. And so even today, we look at it and we're like, Christianity's inglorious. It's foolish. It's folly. Which is really interesting. If you want to read with me here, um, in 1 Corinthians, again, this is now in chapter 4. Listen to what Paul actually says. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, in verse 10, he says this. We are, we have become fools for Christ's sake. But you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we are in disrepute. We are fools for Christ's sake. He's talking about himself and the other strong kind of Christian leaders and witnesses that are going, trying to, to serve others. And he's saying, we've become fools there's nothing about the rules of this world and how to become great that we're following. We're actually doing the opposite. We're living this paradox that, that Jesus lived. We're giving our life away to others. But in that, um, we're gaining life. In that, we are strong. In that, 
uh, we're getting something that nobody can know, but we are fools for Christ. I uh, remember when we started Antioch, writing an article. When we started Antioch, it's actually kind of funny. Five years ago uh, to this Easter was the very first official anything that Antioch did. We, uh, we did a sunrise service for Easter. And there was 13 people, and we froze to death kind of out on someone's lawn, and then we ate breakfast or whatever. And, and so it's kind of cool to see what's happened five years from then. But when we started Antioch roughly about five years ago, I was writing in the process of writing an article that I called The Company of Fools. And what I did is I took that verse and other verses like it, and I said, look, as Christians uh, and, and becoming kind of a unified church in this, there's this idea of where we're a company of fools. We don't really look great. We're not really pursuing great things. We're actually giving our lives away to others, giving our lives away for the sake of Christ, understanding that the paradox means we're going to receive life again in a totally different way, that there's going to be joy, satisfaction, and peace that's not tied to circumstance. It's amazing when you begin to pray with your eyes on God and not your eyes on your circumstances, the kind of joy you go for begins to look a lot different. And it begins to look a lot more like being with God as a witness of God and not like circumstances are driving your happiness. But I remember writing this article about the company of fools and it's a, it's a strong part of the Christian faith. And so what I want to just help us understand is this. Well, let me just read G.K. Chesterton. G.K. Chesterton says this, A man must be prepared not only to be a martyr, but to be a fool. It is absurd to say that a man is ready to toil and die for his convictions if he is not even ready to wear a wreath around his head for them. A man must be prepared not only to be a martyr, but to be a fool. It is absurd to say that a man is ready to toil and die for his convictions if he is not even ready to wear a wreath around his head for them. I want you all to say something with me. Christianity is silly. Okay, so right now. Christianity is silly. It claims to be silly. But it also claims to be true. It's not whether it's silly or not or whether there's um, paradoxes or not. The question with Christianity is whether it's true or not. Let me just read real quick 1 Corinthians 15 for you. If you want to turn there, you can. But in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul hits on this. So this is the same book that he's been saying all these things. And he comes to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and he talks about the resurrection. It's what we're celebrating today on Easter. And he gets to verse 12 and he says this. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ. And it says this, For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. And then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Those are dead. There's no hope for them. And then it concludes this way. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are, all, we are of all people most to be pitied. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Christianity is the worst self-help program ever known to man. It says die to yourself. Give away your life. And if you do that, but there's no hope of resurrection, 
It's a bad decision. If you go to serve people, but you don't serve yourself, and this isn't true, you just wasted all the good opportunities in your life. If you start caring about other people more than yourself, and you labor for them to be happy or them to be satisfied, and there's no hope here, Christ didn't really rise from the dead, um, you just blew the opportunities that you had. You blew the pleasure that you could have had. You blew the happiness. You blew where you could have gotten in your career. Paul is saying that if there is no resurrection, if there's no truth to this, if there's no validity to this, then don't stick around. Because Christianity is, and if it's not true, then there's no reason to stick around. Christianity is silly, and if it is true, then we stick around in faith, knowing that there's good news there, and that on the other side of this paradox, God takes care of those who have been called uh, according to his purposes. All things work for good, Romans 8, 28, for those who are called according to his purposes. We're running out of time, and we're going to hit on some of these things next week, but I want to read a quote from you, kind of where we're going um, in next week. And remember, next week is a lot better than this week. But let me read this to you. This is from Timothy Keller, and if you didn't hear it in the announcements, Rick Gerhardt is leading us uh, kind of a Sunday morning class for anyone who wants to go on Timothy Keller's book, A Reason for God. And it's basically a book talking about this aspect of Christianity, the truth claims of Christianity, evaluating them, uh, evaluating competing truth claims and trying to get to the bottom of some of these paradoxes. Uh, But listen to what Timothy Keller says with regard to doubt. He says this, The only way to doubt Christianity rightly and fairly is to discern the alternate belief under each of your doubts. And then ask yourself what reasons you have for believing those. How do you know your belief is true? It would be inconsistent to require more justification for Christian belief than you do for your own. But that is frequently what happens. In fairness, you must doubt your doubts. My thesis is that if you come to recognize the beliefs on which your doubts about Christianity are based, and if you seek as much proof for those beliefs as you seek from Christians for theirs, you will discover that your doubts are not as solid as they first appeared. So next week we're going to really talk about the truth claims of Christianity because it's one thing to talk about these issues on the relevance of an undeserving Savior or an undesirable Savior and this issue of relevance in an inglorious cross. But what we really have to get at, because we admit, the Bible admits, that Christianity is silly. The question is, is Christianity true? And that's what we're going to talk about next week. And we're going to scratch the, the surface with tolerance, intolerance, and exclusivity. Uh, happy Easter. Let me, let me pray for us real quick. Father, we just commit this morning to you. We ask your blessing. We ask that if we have a kernel of faith, you would grow it. We don't want our eyes blind. We don't want to think that faith means backing into a corner and pretending that things are true. We want to pursue these things. We want to shake them out. Help us to see, to think clearly, to reason well. Um, And if this be true, please show it to us, Father. We want to believe. Help our unbelief. And we commit again this morning to you in Christ's name. Amen.